Lecture 22, How Aging Affects Learning. Have you heard the joke about the two older couples who go out to dinner together? One of the men says to the other man, last week I went to this terrific memory seminar. They taught me all kinds of techniques and strategies that I can use to help me keep my memory sharp as I get older. You should check it out. So his friend says, wow, that does sound interesting. What was the name of that seminar? First guy thinks for a second, hmm. Oh yeah, what's the name of that red flower that has thorns and it smells good? A rose? That's it. Then he turns to his wife. Hey Rose, what was the name of that seminar that I went to last week? Now that joke reflects a common belief that aging is inevitably associated with significant deterioration in mental abilities, including learning and memory. That same belief is even reflected in the etymology of the word senility, which comes from the Latin word for old man. And the belief that senility is a normal part of aging persists to this day in some circles. But it's wrong. Now, obviously, some people do experience significant mental impairments as they get older, especially if they're a victim of Alzheimer's disease. But it turns out that in the absence of disease, the mental impairments associated with aging are typically restricted to a few specific cognitive processes. And most other aspects of mental life don't decline much at all. And in this lecture, I want to explore what scientists are discovering about the effects of aging on learning and memory. And I also want to spend some time talking about what we can do about it. Are there specific steps that we can take to help us keep our mental abilities sharp as we get older? It turns out that there are, and we'll spend the second half of this lecture exploring approaches that have been scientifically proven to help. By the way, I actually made an entire great course devoted to this topic. It's called The Aging Brain, and it explores what happens to our brains as we age at a behavioral, neural, even genetic level. It also covers the main neurological diseases associated with aging, as well as discussing the science of successful aging in real depth. Now, if that sounds like something that might interest you, please check it out. Okay, let's begin by talking about how our ability to learn and remember changes as we get older. And one of the first points to make is that aging has dramatically different effects on what is often called fluid intelligence compared to crystallized intelligence. You may remember the concept of fluid intelligence from our lecture on training your working memory. It refers to cognitive abilities that are relatively independent of what you know. Can you think logically? Can you identify patterns? Can you solve novel problems quickly and effectively? Brain teasers and puzzles that depend more on your ability to think in creative ways rather than on how much you know, would emphasize fluid processing ability. One good example is the card game concentration or memory, in which cards are placed face down and players take turns trying to turn over pairs of matching cards. Now, that doesn't really depend on how much you know. It just tests how much you can remember. So that would be a good test of fluid processing. On the other hand, 
Crystallized intelligence refers to cognitive abilities that do depend critically on your knowledge, your experience, and your acquired skills. For example, crossword puzzles place significant demands on crystallized intelligence because they depend a lot on how much you know about the world. Now let me tell you about some data that my colleague Denise Park collected back around the year 2000. Denise and her team gave people a bunch of tests that tap into fluid processing ability, like asking people to try to remember random words or line drawings or testing how fast they could perform tasks that didn't depend on knowledge. And she generated plots of people's performance as a function of their age. So the horizontal axis would represent the age of the person being tested. On the vertical axis, she plotted what's called a z-score. Now, a z-score just represents how well a person did relative to everyone else being tested. So positive numbers mean they're doing better than most people, negative numbers mean they're doing worse, and a zero means they're about average. That way, even though all the tests measure different things, you can still plot them side by side on the same graph using these standardized z-scores. And when she plotted performance on all these fluid processing tasks, she found that they all looked very similar. The people in their 20s performed the best, the people in their 30s performed the next best, the people in their 40s performed the next best, and so on. With each passing decade, performance on these tasks got worse. In fact, the decline was pretty linear. That is, the decline from 20 to 30 was about the same as the decline from 30 to 40 and from 40 to 50. These same declines were seen in two types of learning that we've discussed extensively in this course, namely episodic memory and working memory. Now, recall, episodic memory refers to long-term explicit memory for personal episodes that you yourself have experienced. Episodic memories are remembered from a first-person perspective, as if you're reliving them through your own eyes and they're also tied to a specific time and place. And unfortunately, Dr. Park found that our ability to store and retrieve episodic memories tends to get a little bit worse with each passing decade. For example, I find that I often forget where I took off my glasses and therefore have to search the plausible places around my house in order to find them. And the same thing happens with my keys. If I don't put my keys in their normal place when I get home, then I sometimes have trouble remembering where I put them. And I suspect that the older members of the audience can probably come up with their own examples in which their episodic memory sometimes fails them. Another type of learning and memory that tends to get a little worse as we get older is working memory. Now remember, working memory is our ability to store information for up to a minute or so and then retrieve that information when we need it later on. We used the example of mental arithmetic to illustrate the idea. If you have to add some multi-digit numbers in your head, you have to constantly store away the results of each column, and then you have to retrieve that information later on to finish the solution. That's working memory. Well, Dr. Park found that working memory also tends to decline with age. For example, maybe you walk into a room for some reason, but then you forget why you went there or maybe you're driving somewhere on a weekend and suddenly you find yourself on automatic pilot driving to work or your home. 
Or maybe you start searching the internet with a specific goal in mind, but you get distracted by other interesting things that you find and you forget what you were looking for in the first place. These are all examples of working memory failures. And although these kinds of errors happen to young people as well as older people, they tend to happen a little more frequently as we age. Now, it's important to keep in mind that subtle age-related declines in episodic memory and in working memory are perfectly normal. Many older people are worried about Alzheimer's disease, and so when they notice that their ability to learn and remember isn't quite as good as it used to be, they naturally worry that it means they're going to develop dementia. But occasional lapses in memory are normal as we age, and they're caused by completely different mechanisms than the much more severe symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. In fact, one very common symptom of Alzheimer's is a lack of awareness of memory problems. So being aware of your occasional lapses is probably a good sign. Furthermore, there are now quite a few studies demonstrating that given enough time, older people can perform fluid processing tasks just as well as younger people. In fact, Dr. Timothy Salthaus at the University of Virginia analyzed age-related declines in fluid intelligence as a function of processing speed. And he found that once he controlled for how fast people were, the age differences vanished. So it's probably more about speed than it is about ability. Finally, it's also important to note that there are substantial differences between different people. Some people experience a lot of learning and memory problems as they get older, but other people experience very few. Most scientific studies of aging average across people of a similar age, and naturally when you do that, what you see is the average amount of decline. But keep in mind that roughly half the people in the sample are doing better than the average. And I suspect many of our older Great Courses customers fall into that category. Okay, well, so far we've focused on aspects of learning and memory that often decline with age. Specifically, storing information in and retrieving information from both episodic memory and working memory often decline a little bit as we get older. And again, I said often, not always. But it turns out that there are other types of learning and memory that don't typically decline with age and may even improve. For example, consider crystallized intelligence, which, as we mentioned, depends critically on your knowledge, on your experience, and on your acquired skills. Dr. Park's group also tested this kind of processing ability, using tasks that tested things like world knowledge and vocabulary. And the results on these tasks looked very different than the results for fluid intelligence. Here, the older groups actually tended to perform better than the younger groups. So although fluid intelligence often declines with age, crystallized intelligence doesn't. In fact, it may actually improve. Do you remember our discussion of semantic memory? That's your knowledge base of everything you know about the world. You know that 2 plus 2 is 4, you know that birds have wings, and you know that Alabama is one of the continental United States. Now, semantic memory is a type of long-term explicit memory, just like episodic memory. That is, you can consciously bring to mind things you know from your semantic memory, and you can verbalize those memories and talk about them. 
But unlike episodic memory, semantic memories are not remembered from a first-person perspective. Knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is just a disembodied fact that you've stored away. And likewise, semantic memories are not tied to a specific time and place, like episodic memories are. And in the absence of disease, our semantic memory seems to improve with age. Our vocabulary gets bigger. Our knowledge of the world expands. And as a result, our crystallized intelligence remains stable or even improves. And it turns out it's not just crystallized intelligence that's preserved with age. For example, your memory for skills and habits is also pretty stable as you get older. Do you remember our discussion of procedural memory? Knowing how to read, how to cook, how to speak a language, how to play an instrument, how to tie your shoes. These are all examples of procedural memory. And studies have repeatedly found that procedural memory doesn't normally decline as we get older. So, the bottom line is that age-related declines seem to be restricted to a few specific cognitive processes related to fluid intelligence. But most other aspects of mental life don't suffer much with age. Why is that? I mean, why should episodic memory and working memory be particularly susceptible to age-related decline, while other types of learning and memory aren't? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at the brain and examine how it changes as we age. One important line of work in this area has been done by Naftali Raz and his colleagues at Wayne State University in Detroit. They examined MRI scans from the brains of a large number of healthy adults, ranging in age from 20 to 80 years old. And using the MRI scans, they painstakingly traced specific brain structures in each individual participant, and then they measured the volume. They plotted this volume of different structures as a function of the age of the participant. Doing so allowed them to determine whether a given brain region shrinks with age, or whether its volume remains relatively constant or even grows. And Dr. Raz's team found two main brain regions that tend to shrink as we age, the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, both of which we've talked about in this course before. First, consider the hippocampus. This was the region that is most associated with amnesia. For example, do you remember our discussion of Henry Malayason, also known as patient HM? He's the patient who had his hippocampus surgically removed in order to treat his intractable epilepsy. And although the surgery did control his epilepsy, it also left him with a very severe amnesia. Specifically, Henry couldn't remember his personal history. He didn't recognize the doctors that he saw every day. He didn't remember whether he had eaten or not. He didn't even remember that he had had surgery. In other words, his ability to store and retrieve episodic memories was dramatically impaired after removal of the hippocampus. And when Dr. Raz and his colleagues plotted the size of the hippocampus as a function of age, they found something very interesting. They made a graph with age on the horizontal axis and hippocampus volume on the vertical axis. And then they put a dot on the graph corresponding to each participant. So a 20-year-old with a large hippocampus would be represented by a dot on the top left of the graph, 
and an 80-year-old with a small hippocampus would be represented by a dot on the bottom right of the graph. Furthermore, most of the participants were measured twice, five years apart. And Dr. Roz included both points in the graph with a line connecting points from the same individual. That way, they could see brain volume changes within each individual, as well as brain volume differences across individuals of different age. And they found that the hippocampus tends to shrink a little bit with each passing decade. And that was true both when comparing old people to young people and when comparing volume estimates in the same individual five years later. So, why does episodic memory tend to decline with age? Well, this study suggests that one reason may be that the hippocampus is shrinking. After all, we know that episodic memory depends critically on the hippocampus, and now we know that the hippocampus tends to get smaller as we age. It therefore seems plausible to think that the memory decline might be related to the changes in the hippocampus. Next, consider the prefrontal cortex. Now, you may recall that the prefrontal cortex is kind of like the CEO of the brain, controlling what we pay attention to, managing goals, delegating responsibilities to other brain processes. In particular, we pointed out that the prefrontal cortex is hypothesized to play a central role in working memory, perhaps by exciting posterior brain areas and keeping them active after a sensory stimulus has been removed. The prefrontal cortex was also the brain area most associated with Badley's central executive component of working memory. And prefrontal cortex was the other main brain area that Dr. Raz and his colleagues identified as tending to shrink with age. Once again, when they plotted prefrontal cortex volume versus age, they found that the prefrontal cortex tends to get a little bit smaller as we get older. And that provides a very natural explanation for why working memory tends to decline with age. If prefrontal cortex is actually shrinking as we get older, and working memory depends on prefrontal cortex, then we can understand why working memory might tend to get worse as we age. The bottom line is that the effects of aging on learning and memory actually map fairly directly onto age-related changes in the brain. Specifically, the learning functions that decline most with age, namely episodic memory and working memory, depend on the very brain regions that shrink most with age, namely the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Okay, now I want to switch gears and spend the rest of this lecture talking about what we can do about it. That is, are there any steps that you and I can take to help our brains age a little more gracefully and perhaps preserve our learning and memory abilities as long as possible? Well, the answer is definitely yes, and that's what I want to talk about next. I want to focus on four strategies that now have fairly strong scientific support. Number one, eating right. Number two, staying active. Number three, maintaining relationships. And number four, reducing your stress. You can remember these four strategies with the acronym EARS. E stands for eating right. A stands for activity. R stands for relationships. And S stands for stress reduction. First, consider eating right. There's now quite a bit of evidence that eating a healthy diet with fewer calories can extend lifespan. 
For example, in one famous study, rats who were fed a low-calorie diet lived almost twice as long as rats that ate as much as they wanted. Likewise, another study found that monkeys who were fed a low-calorie diet lived roughly 60 to 70% longer than monkeys whose diet wasn't restricted. And it's not just how much you eat. What you eat is also very important. For example, people who grew up around the Mediterranean Sea in the 1950s often live longer, healthier lives than most other people around the world. And one hypothesis is that their diet played an important role. And so scientists started investigating the effects of eating a so-called Mediterranean diet. Now, this diet consists of a lot of fruits and vegetables, a lot of olive oil, moderate amounts of alcohol, whole grains, and a lot of fish, nuts, and legumes. One famous study assigned over 7,000 people to eat one of three diets. Two of the groups ate a Mediterranean diet that had been supplemented either with extra virgin olive oil or with nuts. A third group ate a standard low-fat diet that many cardiologists at the time actually recommended, but it wasn't a Mediterranean diet. The scientists planned to follow these 7,000 people over many years, but they decided to stop the study after only five years. And you know why? It's because they were already finding large differences in the health of the groups eating Mediterranean diet compared with the group eating the low-fat control diet. In particular, the incidence of heart attack, of stroke, and of death were significantly lower in the Mediterranean diet groups than they were in the control group. The scientists therefore felt like it would be unethical to continue the experiment without telling people in the control group about what they had found. And so they decided to stop the study after five years. Furthermore, this study also found that eating a Mediterranean diet improved cognitive functions. Specifically, all the participants were given a battery of cognitive tests before and after the experiment. And the scientists found that the people eating the control diet were a little bit worse over time on tests of memory and executive function. And that's consistent with the age-related declines that we've talked about already in this lecture. But amazingly enough, the participants eating the Mediterranean diet didn't decline. In fact, their scores got better. And other studies have found that eating a Mediterranean diet also reduces your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, maybe by as much as 50%. So eating better can make a real difference in how gracefully your mind and brain age. Now let's turn to the A in EARS, which stands for activity. Kirk Erickson and Art Kramer at the University of Illinois conducted one of the most famous studies of the effects of physical activity on the mind and brain. They recruited over 120 older people and they randomly assigned half of them to one year of aerobic exercise. The other half did stretching and toning, but didn't participate in aerobic exercise. Both groups had brain scans and memory tests both before and after the one-year intervention. Now, you'll recall that normally the hippocampus shrinks as we get older. And sure enough, the hippocampus looked a little smaller in the control group after one year than it did before the experiment. But surprisingly, in the other group, 
both the left and the right hippocampus actually got a little bit larger after a year of aerobic exercise. Furthermore, changes in the size of the hippocampus were associated with changes in memory performance. So people who exhibited the most growth in the hippocampus also experienced the most improvement in their memory function. Conversely, those who experienced the most shrinkage of the hippocampus experienced the most decline in their memory. Vigorous mental activity can also help us age more gracefully. For example, a number of studies have found that learning a second language is associated with better cognition in later life. And others have found that learning a complex new hobby, like digital photography or quilting, also has cognitive benefits. In one particularly important experiment called the ACTIVE study, a large group of older participants received intensive training in reasoning, in memory, or in processing speed, all of which tend to get worse as we get older. And sure enough, the participants improved in the domain in which they were trained. And that improvement lasted for at least five years. So the bottom line is that staying active, both mentally and especially physically, has proven to help people stay mentally sharp as they get older. Now let's turn to the R in EARS, which stands for relationships. There's now a growing body of evidence that good social relationships can also help us stay sharp as we age. In one famous study, one group of older participants worked together with five to seven other participants on a long-term project that involved team-based problem solving. They met to work on this project over 20 times over the course of a few months. Another group of older participants just continued life as usual without that regular social interaction. And the scientists compared the cognitive performance of the two groups before and after the experiment. And they found that the people who had been assigned to the social interaction group performed better on all the tests. Their processing speed improved, their working memory improved, their reasoning improved, and their spatial processing improved. Now, it's important to note that the social interaction group may also have been more active than the control group, both mentally and physically. So perhaps these results are another example of the positive effects of activity rather than being due to social interaction per se. We just don't know. Nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that social activity certainly won't hurt, and it might be another effective way to help us age more gracefully. Okay, so we've talked about the E, A, and R in ears. Eating right, activity, and relationships. Finally, let's turn to the S, which stands for stress reduction. Now, recall from our lecture on stress and emotion that when we experience stress, we activate a biological system called the HPA axis. And when the HPA axis is activated, it triggers a fight or flight response. You get a jolt of adrenaline, your mouth goes dry, your pupils dilate, your sensations are heightened, and your heart starts to race. Now, the fight or flight response is very helpful if you're dealing with a life-threatening situation. This is the system that helps an antelope spring into action and escape an attacking lion. Likewise, if you were about to be violently attacked, 
this system would kick into gear to help you escape or fight if escape wasn't possible. The problem, however, is that many people chronically activate this HPA axis and the associated fight or flight response just from daily stress at work or in relationships. And chronic activation can lead to disease and actually increase the speed of aging. In fact, the effects of stress can even be seen at the level of our chromosomes. Now, as you may know, our genetic material is contained in 23 pairs of chromosomes inside all the cells in our body. And at the end of each chromosome is a little tip called a telomere. Now, telomeres are like the tips on the end of shoelaces that keep the laces from getting frayed. Likewise, telomeres help prevent our chromosomes from getting damaged. You see, every time a cell divides, it has to make copies of the chromosomes. And due to the way the copying mechanism works, the very end of the chromosome doesn't get copied. Now, that would be very bad if the end of the chromosome contained genes, because then those genes would get lost after cell division. Chromosomes therefore have these protective telomeres at the end that don't contain any genes. However, the end of the telomeres don't get copied, and that means telomeres get shorter with every cell division. And as a result, scientists sometimes use telomere length as a measure of biological age. And one clever experiment looked at telomere length as a way to investigate the effects of stress on aging. In this experiment, Alyssa Eppel at the University of California, San Francisco, along with a number of colleagues, measured telomere length in two different groups of mothers. One group of mothers had children who were suffering from a terminal disease and had therefore been experiencing severe stress for an extended period of time. The other group had healthy children and were only experiencing normal levels of stress. And the scientists found that the telomeres were significantly shorter in the mothers of sick children compared with the mothers of healthy children. In fact, they were shorter by an average of about 10 years worth of cell divisions. So there's actually some truth to the idea that stress can make you age. Of course, it's not always easy to reduce stress, especially if we're constantly faced with deadlines or other obligations. But one method that has been scientifically demonstrated to reduce stress is meditation. In particular, meditation has been found to lower heart rate, reduce blood pressure, and even lower levels of bad cholesterol. It also turns out that three of the most effective approaches to reducing stress are also the very methods we talked about earlier to help us age more gracefully, namely eating right, staying active, and maintaining social relationships. They've all been found to reduce stress, and perhaps that's one reason that they help us to age a little more gracefully. Okay, let's finish up. I hope I've convinced you that aging isn't just about mental and neural deterioration. In fact, many aspects of your mental life will likely remain stable, and some will even improve. So, rather than thinking of aging as a kind of deterioration, I think it's more accurate to think of it as a kind of transformation. Now, 
your golf scores may go up, your bowling scores may go down, and your hair might turn a different color. But there's a lot more to look forward to as you age than you may have thought. And if you remember the acronym EARS and put some of those ideas into practice, there's also something you can do about it.